Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, Guilty Feminist. This is Deborah. Just Briefly interrupting to let you know that we have a big Guilty Feminist live show for International Women's Day at Leicester Square Theatre in London on the 4th of March. Get your tickets now. It's going to be a spectacular one. We'll be in King's Place in London on the 17th of March. Get your tickets now. We've been having some fabulous times recently back out at live shows. We miss you. Come back out. Get tickets soon, though, because a lot of them are selling out. And please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. Even if you've rated and reviewed it before, it really helps other people find it. You can rate, review and subscribe every episode if you want to. Please give us five stars and tell people about the podcast online or with your face. You can also join our Patreon to get ad-free episodes. And now back to the podcast. Hello, Sydney. Are you ready for a little bit more Guilty Feminist? Then please welcome back to the stage your hosts, Deborah Francis-White and Cal Wilson. Sydney, so far you have been an absolute joy. That's what we've been saying backstage. We There's have. been no complaints, have there, Cal? No, no, we've been enjoying it. I'm a bit disturbed by this cushion between us. It's like we've had a fight or something. <laughs> I think it's more like this is our feminist baby. <laughs> our feminist baby is a beautiful title for a book, but I, 
That I reckon is not what you'd be expecting. Just a, <laughs> a black just, furry cushion. I'll just slide it over the back. No one will notice. And then I'll just cross my legs towards you. In our matching et al pantaloons. Um, they're very good for shoplifting, these pants. Um, mm. If you're listening at home, we're both wearing pantaloons. Voluminous. Yeah, voluminous. Voluminous pantaloons. Um, I could fit a feminist baby in one of these pockets. <laughs> they're like jodhpurs or something, aren't they? Yeah. Makes me feel a bit, you know. Um, I was wearing these pants uh, the other day. I don't know why I've started to tell the story, but I'm here. I'm doing it. Okay. Um, There's no backing out now, Carl. There is no backing out. I, I, you don't need to know why, but I had to ride a donkey. And... <laughs> I feel we'd like to know why. It's for a job, and sure, uh, I was wearing because I thought these pan, these pants look like jumpers. And I, I, anyway, it's the wrong point to start in the story. What I'm saying is, I've hurt my leg, and I couldn't work out how I'd done it. And the physio said, "How did you hurt your leg?" And I went, "I haven't done anything." And they went, "Oh, I did have to fling my leg over a donkey, and that's how I've pulled a muscle." Anyway, um, sounds a lot like a euphemism, Cal. I, I flung my leg over a donkey and I yeah. pulled a muscle. I flung my leg over a donkey. Sounds like a euphemism for a sex injury, if ever there was one. Has anyone else got euphemisms for a sex injury? Yes? What's yours? I like the tired way you answered yes immediately, though. Yes. yes. I'm carrying it now. What's your, what's your innuendo for sex injury? You want to keep it to yourself. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. I understand that. Tristan, have you got anything? No, I'm sorry, again, I've forgotten Tristan's mum's in again. Uh, have you met Tristan? I haven't met Tristan. He's an I incredible, Tristan from my, who is an incredible young is man. Um, he's waving, not drowning. Oh, no, I was looking at the couple at the front. I'm sorry, because... No, uh, no, no. no. Are there any adorable. other Tristans oh, in? Gosh, Just give us a cheer if you're mom. another Tristan. No. Oh, there's one other Tristan in. Wow, you could find each other. Hello, other Tristan? Are you as good as this Tristan? Another... What? Is that the euphemism for a sex injury? <laughs> oh, I've, I've done my Tristan. I've, I've got another Tristan. Let's not do that to poor... Act, poor actual Tristan is a genuine feminist find. And you know, normally, I mock men who put themselves forwards as feminists. Not this time. Is that just because you're scared of Tristan's mum? No. No. <laughs> If you didn't hear it backstage, I mean, he's, he's really impressive. Um, I don't mock men. That's not fair. I don't mock men. I, I mildly and affectionately tease them for upward of two hours. <laughs> they love it. They love it. They're flattered. They enjoy it. They write to me afterwards to say, can you do it again? <laughs> I say, no, I've got to cut you off at some point. <laughs> this has been most illuminating. Mm. Um, we met May at the airport, and she does burlesque, and she has a friend called Emmeline Spankhurst. <gasps> She's here! She's here. Is oh, Emmeline like... Spankhurst in the audience? That was, um, that, was, that was like Field of Dreams. If you mention Emmeline Spankhurst, she will come. She's like Beetlejuice. Oh, well, you say her name three true. times, and she appears. Emmeline Spankhurst, how did you come up with your name? Your feminist friends made you. Made. Okay, Feminism 101, you don't let other people make you do things. You say, no, feminist friends, if you were feminist, you wouldn't force me into this. 
Well, what I like about Emmeline Spanker's story is it makes it sound like she herself is not a feminist. Because she said, my feminist friends. Oh, yeah, me. that's actually true. Are you a feminist, Emmeline Spankhurst? Yes. Yes, she is. A lucky she answer. Is. A lucky answer. I'm not, but some of my best friends are. <laughs> Listen, I think that's a fantastic name as a lover of both feminism and spanking. Um, and we did, it did rather inspire us. Yeah. In the WhatsApp as we indeed. were both standing at our separate baggage carousels in two separate airports. Yes, indeed. Um, we were texting, Grace and I were texting Cal and going, we've just bumped into a burlesque act and she's told us this story. Um, and she was at the Wellington show, she's coming to the Sydney show and we told Cal about Emmeline Spankhurst. Now, I don't know if you know Cal Wilson personally, but if you do, you will know. If you present her with wordplay in a WhatsApp, that's your day gone. It'll be back, it'll be forth, it'll be back, it'll be forth. So, Cal, mm. what was your first offering? I think it was... This is uh, obviously uh, feminist burlesque names, obviously. Yeah. Let's just set that up. Uh, I came up with glorious sternum. <laughs> so I countered with Simone Du Beaver. <laughs> but the do is spelt D-O, just to be clear. Now this if one you're a not... young person and you don't know Simone de Beauvoir, then you won't get that joke, but you don't deserve to. But there's a thing called Google. Uh, so, uh, the, the, now you didn't reckon this person was actually feminist anymore, but I still liked it. Jermaine Rhea. Nobody reckons she's feminist anymore. She's <laughs> mad. I just put that like, just put that weird, like, oh no, she's done some wonderful things lately. No, no. that's not what I mean at all. She's wild, wildly missed the turn off, but I think <laughs> Jermaine Rhea is too good a pun mm. for us not to use. Um, who came up with Booty Free Dan? That was you? Excellent. Yep. I believe Grace Petrie added Judith Smutler. And you were Maya Ingenue. Oh, yes. Um, my favourite that I came up with was Ruth Bader for JJ. <laughs> I mean, technically speaking, it doesn't really follow the rules of word. It doesn't, play, but, but it's that's very it's, good. That's why it's funny. You just whip the carpet <laughs> at the end. Just whip the rug. Anyone got any others they want to shout out? Has anyone been sitting there? Because I know this audience. They'll be sitting there going, oh, I've got one. Has anyone got... Wollstone Shaft. What's that? <gasps> Mary Wollstone Shaft. <laughs> Mary Wollstone Shaft. That was Shaft. the one I thought was Tristan. <laughs> no, not Tristan. What's your name? Ethan. 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 Ethan, Mary Wollstone Shaft. It's very good. Wow. wow. And is that... No, let's not, let's not delve. Um, <laughs> any more for any more? You... Ruth Bader Bing, bada boom. Bada boom. Oh, that good. is good. That's strong. She could be in a double act with, with Ruth Bader for JJ. <laughs> and they could both be fully dressed as Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but one young, one older. Oh, I, I thought just half dressed, but one up top and one down bottom. <laughs> um, yeah, any more? Vagina Wolf. How did we miss that one? How did we miss that one? How did we miss that one? Vagina Wolf. That's really difficult to understand how we missed that one. I feel I would be intimidated by that burlesque act. 
came up with Virgin Nearwolf. But then I didn't read it out here because I thought it was wrong on every level. It didn't, it yeah. wasn't my best work and it just felt wrong. And so I just left Virginia Woolf where she was. But Virginia Woolf also sounds like someone who just really loves vaginas, doesn't mm. it? It sounds to me like, what's that thing where the vagina has teeth? The vagina dentata. That's right. That's what it sounds to me like. What? That came was quite it's like that, didn't what I? What big teeth you have. <laughs> I, that's what it sounds to me like. Uh, anybody, someone have one over here? Jacinda Hardon. Jacinda Hardon. <laughs> We're not going to do better than that. Are we ready to bring in our guests? <laughs> We're trying to get Jacinda Ardern on the podcast. Can we put this out with Jacinda Hardon? What if she, what if she says, she, everyone's asking her, I know, I know so many people have WhatsApped her and said you should do it. What if she just goes, all right, I should just listen to this thing I'm meant to be on. And the first episode she hears is, oh, Sydney, oh, that's great. That's, that's you know, that's close to home. And then she hears us calling her Jacinda Hardon. See, I reckon she would have tapped out at Vagina Wolf. I, would have, I think she would have gone, oh, that's a, bit, a little bit much. Yeah, maybe we should send her a bespoke tape of the best bits of The Guilty Feminist, by which we mean the cleanest, most amusing bits. And then some sort of, you know, some of the episodes where we go a bit, we change gear and we get a bit more serious and deep. And then just smash into Vagina Wolf at the end. (laughs) Don't say smash into Vagina Wolf. Cal, there are limits. Don't you do any kink shaming. (laughs) I don't think smashing a vagina is a kink. I think it's just a really, really straight bloke thing to say. If it's a... If it's a China vagina on a shelf and you knock it off and you smash the China vagina. <laughs> Can I tell you how much I'm enjoying saying China vagina? It's very evident. Listen. A designer if, China vagina. What did I tell you about your whole day being gone? If the wordplay starts, we'll be here at two in the morning. Do you, do you sell any bespoke porcelain genitalia? <laughs> We have a designer China vagina. (laughs) And this ceramic penis in the shape of your husband's. Doesn't rhyme, but it would also fit the bill. (laughs) Ruth Bader for Gigi. Okay. (laughs) We're never going to get Greta Thunberg on, are we? Our first guest today. <laughs> I'm just watching attentively. I'm not doing anything. Our first guest today is arguably best known as the host of the long-running SBS hit TV program, Rock Wiz. Her success includes hosting and co-producing the hugely successful Julia Zamiro's home delivery for the ABC. That gives away who it is it a does, bit. It does. It does give away. home yep. delivery. And the Logie winning Fisk seasons one and soon to air season two. Her co-hosting of the Eurovision Song Contest led to an unprecedented success for SBS. Put your hands together and make incredible woohooing noises for the wonderful Julia Zamero! Come take a seat. 
How exciting is it to be on the Guilty Feminist Podcast? Oh, Julia. I know. You've been in the audience. We've always wanted to get you on. We're just so thrilled and excited for you to be here. I usually listen to you walking on my long walks. Oh, I know. darling. And here you are. It's, it is a bit nuts. It's exciting. Yeah. Well, you'll be listening to yourself on your long walk. Well, maybe I won't. <laughs> I struggle to listen to myself anymore. I'm like, I've heard it. Um... <laughs> Our next guest is a writer and theatre maker best known as host and curator of Queer Stories, a national LGBTQI plus storytelling night and podcast. She's toured feminist cabaret productions around the world and her work has often been described as wholesome, which she thinks is cool young people's way of saying, you're in your late 30s, you're not very edgy, but we think you're quite charming all the same. She's currently parenting a one-year-old while writing a play about lesbians getting divorced. Please welcome to the stage, Maeve Marsden! Maeve. Our final guest today is a poet and artist of Wiradjuri heritage based on sovereign Gadigal land. You've already heard about her many, many accolades tonight. I will just tell you one more. Uh, she won the University of Canberra Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Poetry Prize and also a Copyright Agency First Nations Fellowship and a First Nations Emerging Career Award from the Australian Council for the Arts. You've already heard some of her poetry tonight. Now please welcome her to the sofa with enormous guilty feminist woohooing noises, the incredible Jazz Money! <laughs> Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for coming. Jez, you've just got the best name. Jez Money is just the best name. Can you imagine how unusual my parents are? (laughs) I feel like Jez Money, you've really got to be a performer. Like, they've left you with no other options. I wish I'd taken a stage name that was very demure. Oh, so your real real name's Jez Money, but you just call yourself Boring McBoringface. Yes, because the other jazz monies are like, there's a terrible Scarborough band in Toronto, um, and then there's a Pakistani short loan company. And so, <laughs> like, they're the people that go by jazz money by choice, and right. I, I was, you know, given jazz yeah. money. So you went to school on day one, they said, what's your name? And you said, jazz money. And that... You know, I, the thing is, I just and think guess it's so what? The cool. jokes, the joke started then. <laughs> I think it's too cool, too cool. Today we're going to be talking about story. Um, there has never been a revolution without stories being told and songs being sung. That's it's never happened. There's been never been a revolution without narrative songs that have emboldened and without stories being told. There has never, women have never got rights. In no country have women got the right to vote without stories being told and shared. And then more marginalised women have never got rights from the people who, you know, the women who got the rights first without story. Um, at Repeal the Eighth in Ireland, when a few years ago Ireland, in Ireland they uh, got the right, to, women got the right to choose and won the right to available abortions, the... The poll, they polled to see what made people change their vote. And it was, you know, it's, as you know, it's a very Catholic country. And people said the top thing that had made the change their vote was strangers' stories. 
Lower down was families and friend stories. And I think that is because people can exceptionalise. They can go, well, my daughter really did need an abortion, but she was just about to go to university to become a doctor, so that was an exception. Abortion shouldn't be legal, but my daughter had to go to England to get one. But then when you see lots and lots and lots of stranger stories on the TV and on the radio, you start to think, oh my God, everybody is somebody's exception. Everyone's an exception, so therefore we need to change the law. And so I think story is one of the most powerful tools, and without it, we will see no more change in the world. And with it, we can change almost anything. So we've assembled tonight a panel of Australia's best feminist storytellers. Um, who all bring different skills. Um, Cal Wilson, who's my co-host for this evening, is an incredible stand-up comedian and uh, really is actually one of... I mean, there's lots of comics who are like, you know, oh, what's the deal with public transport? But Cal... <laughs> or Cal is one of the best storytelling stand-ups I've ever heard in my life. Like, she always draws you into a story. And she will tell you what the deal with transport is by telling a story about catching a train not making observations from arm's length usually but I would say to um, Cal and I met through um, theatre sports and theatre sports is one thing they're kind of time games etc and people vote on it but at the base of it's improvisation and you know every culture has a form of improvisation and you know telling stories from memory and from what you see around you and I think the, the real freedom of improvisation in terms of what we do is that you always looked after each other mm. and you just don't need anything else than what's on stage in front of you and what you're being given. And so you will see the other person, you will hear the other person, and because you get trained, because you actually get to training, you can see or you'll, it'll be pointed out if you block an idea or you block a, mm. um, a, a suggestion from someone and when you've tried to make it all about you and not about the other person... And we fail all the time, but the beauty of impro is that you fail and do it again in five minutes. So at the base of, of a lot of people who I know, and Deborah, you've been imp an improviser too, it's, that's a, one of the best ways of telling a story and learning how to tell a story without having to write it down necessarily or think of something magical out of your head. I agree. It puts it inside your bones because you have to be in the moment. Mm. And I don't think the stories I told when I was an improviser were the most feminist stories. I'm not saying they were unfeminist, but they weren't, you know, they just, in the moment, I'm coming into a pet shop or something. Um, but it does put the art of storytelling in, mm. inside of you, deep down. And also the art of listening as well. Like, when, when you improvise, you have to listen to what the other person is saying so you know where the scene is going and how mm. to build on that scene... And when I'm, when I'm talking to kids about um, storytelling, I talk a lot about collaboration and a lot about how if you've got two brains together, it's not a brain plus a brain, it's a brain times a brain. So you come up mm. with something together that you would never have come up with by yourself Very and true. you're surprised by what's happening and it just leads to just a far bigger story than you could have made up on your own. Completely. I'm just aware that what I was doing was sort of introducing to the audience why you've been picked and then because the brains on the stage are fizzing so much, I only really got as far as Cal. And I haven't really said why they're here. Like, I mean, I've done their intros, but I was just sort of doing an intro as to why you're all brilliant storytellers. Um, and Julia stepped in to talk about how great Cal was before I got a chance to say how great Julia was. Because sisterhood. Um, 
but Julia, your uh, you're an incredible storyteller too, and your TV show, um, which was uh, it, it, it took people back to their homes when where they were children, where they grew up. Um, I watched the one that um, I mean, I watched I've watched some of them over the years when I visited Australia, but I watched. Uh, one this week where you went back to your home, to your school, to your drama school, and it was really, really moving because we get the story of who this person really is. You've got a brilliant art of getting stories out of people. and Well, much about in terms of having to listen, you know, with Rockwiz it's all about entertaining and improvising with people and listening to what they're doing and making them feel comfortable. They've been dying to be on the show for months, years, so we get them on. And Eurovision was about talking to people backstage often who didn't have English as a first language. And in fact, I went there going, I've got French, I'll be all over this. And they'd be like, oh, Journey speak two languages, that's sad. We speak four or six. Um, but I did my best. Um, but with Home Delivery, the first few episodes that we filmed, I just had to learn how to shut up. Mm. as well because you feel like you have to entertain and fill and all that and if you don't let them talk and learn to also leave big silences but doing my own episode which was so strange because I kept wanting to ask questions and if you watch it I feel like I've really motored in on poor Costa I'm like because I can't get my head around that I don't have to lead it or whatever I did realise that, of course, you can only tell stories in one... You could, you'll only see that story in one way. It could have been done in 15 different ways. It could have been edited in 15 different ways. We could have gone to slightly different places, but what it does do is it takes you out of the studio, off the stage, and back to that place where just by being there you might remember something mm. that you didn't even think you thought you remember, you'd remember. What's really interesting about home delivery is it's just a sort of... And I really want to inspire the audience tonight to think about how they can tell stories, and that's just a brilliant way in. It's just like, OK, what if we start with your family home, your first school, and all of these magical stories will come out of that. But you could start with the shoes in someone's cupboard. You could start with, you know, if you wanted to tell the story of, you know, influential women in Sydney or, you know, your grandmother who nobody knows about but who is a genius or whatever, you could start in so many different ways. The painting that she always had on her wall. Um, there are so many different ways to start a story. Maeve, you are the host and creator of Queer Stories, which has become an Australian institution, an iconic show, um, which I listened to today. I listened to your story on that, which was absolutely incredible. Uh, about abseiling and the disasters therein. Um, and you were phenomenal at giving queer people a space to just have an authentic story that isn't necessarily about being queer, because people don't wake up in the morning and go, put on my gay shoes, you know, like, uh, just be gay all day. You know, that is just one thing about you when you create this incredible platform. Well, yeah, my prompt at Queer Stories is actually tell the story you want to tell but are never asked to. Mm. And I think it's the, that came from the idea that so often LGBTQI plus people are asked to talk about coming out or mm. they're asked really, like, specific questions and the basis of the question is always presuming otherness. It's always going, oh, well, tell us the ways in which you're different and how fascinating. And interestingly, once you've told that story 5,000 times, it becomes incredibly dull to tell. Yeah. Um, and so that's why when I did a story myself, I did it about being involved in the largest land rescue in Australian history at the time, because no one ever says to you, did you and 23 other theatre students go abseiling and get stuck and get airlifted out by a helicopter? Mm. 
People would always say to me, what was it like being raised by lesbian mums? And I've told that story, but I haven't told the helicopter one, so that's the one I did for our Queer Stories. But it has meant that, you know, nearly 300 people have performed at Queer Stories now, and the stories are always different because of that prompt. Say something unique about you. Don't educate the audience. Speak to the kind of internal kind of specificity of who you are. And Jazz, do you find that similarly as an Indigenous woman, people want you to come and talk about being Indigenous, and that is, again, one thing about you, but there are other stories you want to tell that may be filtered through an Aboriginal lens, but that's not the full sum of you. Do you find you get booked in that way? Yes, but less so because I say more no's. <laughs> but, but also, I, I kind of can't help myself. Like, if I'm booked to do anything, I can't help but rock up and be... a Aboriginal lesbian, and so, like Maeve's saying, what comes out of my mouth is just inherently coded in that, even when it's like, when I did a Queer Stories, um, I didn't read poems, I, I told a hookup story, a failed hookup story, and even though it wasn't explicitly Aboriginal, I'm still the protagonist. Yeah. <laughs> and so you get to see some Aboriginal failure for once, instead of all the excellence that's everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, the freedom to be mediocre or to just tell a story. I remember going to a film festival, uh, an independent film festival with Susan McComer, who many of you will know, who she's on the podcast a lot. And uh, she's a British woman of Nigerian heritage. And she, we saw this you know, really indie film about this like, white guy just angsting over life, existential crisis. And she just turned to me and she just went, I just desperately want to be in a film, she's an actress, want to be in a film where I just, I don't know, my character just gets on a train and then buys a piece of pizza and falls on the ground and then some birds eat it and then he just looks, she just looks at the pizza and just thinks about life. She's like, I see these films at independent film festivals all the time where a white guy is just looking into the distance going, why? And she's like, I'm just not casting that. Always it's about, you know, it's, a, it's about a black female experience rather than a human experience. What's the value of us telling stories about our humanity where our identity might be a filter, but it's not the thrust? What's the value in that? And how can we better do that? I think stop making stories in order to do that. Like, stop making stories with a purpose. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, but the minute we try to make stories to educate or to represent ourselves, diversity and inclusion and representation, the words have stopped meaning anything because they don't allow for that specificity and the woman just walking down and dropping some pizza. And so I think kind of stopping trying to play to that gaze, stopping trying to get a mainstream audience for marginalised stories and just going, we're going to play to each other for a little while because we know how complicated and interesting we are. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I don't want to be educated for a little while. I don't want to be inspired. Like, I want to see some flaws and some failings from my fellow queers and from other marginalised folk. I wonder, too, I, I always think there's that idea that... I mean, I, when you say making stories, I, I feel like you're talking about performers or writers or people who want to make stories. But I think the stories you tell with your friends that will never appear anywhere else but with that friend... That's a story, you know, and one of my best friends, Josie, you know, we send each other, like, long kind of personal podcasts, <laughs> like long messages that go for 20 minutes. And it's because sometimes, you know, we're talking on the phone, you're in the car, that's not very good, you know, quality. And so we, I, we just both go for long walks 
and we just tell each other what's happened in our day and we literally jump out of our skin with excitement in the morning going, oh, there's a podcast for me, my personal podcast. And the joy of it is to tell the story in the best way about what's been happening and sometimes you'll cry because you've had a shit day or whatever, but it's sort of colouring that story particularly targeted for that person and the pure joy that it will not go and be a podcast. They will not be on Instagram. You've got to have some privacy and some sweet, sweet stories for each other mm. and make that effort as well for it to never be seen but by one other person that you adore, you know. I think they're... And we need it at the moment because it's all a bit shit. Mm. <laughs> That's really interesting. Uh, Cal, how do you feel about storytelling? What gets you out of bed to be a storyteller? I think that what we all want is to be connected and Mm. storytelling connects us and it doesn't matter who you are, if you are telling your own story, people react to authenticity. So sometimes you might see that stand-up comedian on stage and they'll be talking about how many drugs they take or how many women they've slept with and you just go, you've never touched a woman and you don't... (laughs) You've never even seen a cigarette, you know, like... like, But but if that person came up and stood there and said, I've never touched a woman and I've never even touched a cigarette, you'd go, wow, tell me, tell me more about that. Like, like because... Oh, there's that quote about, you know, the, the, the more specific someone's story is, the more universal it is. I think we, resp- we respond to the emotion that people have or, or... Like, we all know what it's like to be moved by something or to be overwhelmed or to be frightened or to laugh or... And, and that connects you to that person. Like, hearing other people's experiences about not feeling alone, like, for me, I discovered that if something terrible happens, like, the, the most humiliating thing happened to me once. I was, I was horribly sick at a restaurant in Venice, this expensive restaurant, and I vomited just everywhere. It was just the... I was like, I, I would like to die now because this is the worst thing I can imagine. And then I ended up making it the last story I told at my festival show a couple of years later. And it just took all the, the sting and the humiliation out of it because it, like... Like, it was just a shared, oh, my God, how terrible sort of experience. And, like... Who doesn't like to sit there and, as, as performers, who doesn't love a terrible gig story? Like, there's so much glee and, oh, my God, and then the horse racing was on and uh, they just kept yelling at people's parmigiana orders in front, you know, like, like all of that sort of... Mm. Like, the terrible Everything's times, the, copy. It, who said everything's copy? Probably an Efron, I reckon. Yeah, Nora yeah. Efron, yeah. She said that because she was raised by screenwriters, yes. if she came home from school and said, oh, there was girls picking on me or something bad happened, her mother would say, like, oh, well, everything's copy. And she said, I think what she meant was, if you fall over and uh, people laugh, it's their laugh. But if you tell the story of you falling over, it's your laugh. But it's interesting how picky we are with stories. Like, uh, we really didn't want to talk about COVID, but I'll quickly say this. When Melbourne first went through a very different COVID experience to the rest of us, I'd go into shops and go, God, isn't it terrible what's happening in Melbourne? Like, what do you mean? I don't... There are stories that you don't particularly want to hear or that you don't want to believe or you think aren't convenient, but they're a really important story to that city. And I found that if we are wanting to be connected and we all want to <laughs> listen to each other, the fact that this thing was happening in a town not far from us and we didn't really give a shit about or understand until, God forbid, it came to us a, few, a year later, we were like, this is awful. <laughs> And I was like, did you not hear what people were saying? It was happening in in our country and we still try and find ways to make states Mm. and territories separate. Then we've got no hope. Mm. And so the point of stories is always to kind of go, 
I mean, I'm not saying you've got to listen to someone for nine hours, tell a story to everyone's, you know, going, all right, you've had your turn, well done. But it's, it is that notion of, it is that notion of we must not lose sight of just being, giving a shit about the person in the next town because... It's, it's important because we're, we're really on a tightrope. I'm full of... I'm a real Barbie bright side, aren't I, Maeve? Yeah. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hello, Guilty Feminists. It's Jessica Regan here, delighted to tell you that Big Speeches returns with a host of workshops for spring 2023. Our communications workshop, Big Speeches, will take place online on the last Sunday of each month, March through to May inclusive. So that's March 26th, April 30th and May 28th, all at 3pm Greenwich Mean Time and all online. Go to guiltyfeminist.com forward slash big speeches to secure your place. We can't wait to see you to help you take space, find your voice and get the most out of the year ahead. What in stories have inspired you as women, as, you know, queer women, indigenous women? Like what stories have inspired you and storytellers have inspired you? A, to find your whole self more and B, to inspire your feminism but, but, but to also in, to inspire you to be storytellers. Um, are there any poets, Jazz, that made you think, yeah, I want to do that? Yeah, I mean, I, I came to writing poetry a little bit backwards um, where I was writing for quite a while and then uh, realised that there is this incredible, incredible community of First Nations women and queer folk uh, writing poetry here and that this is a tradition that goes the whole way back. Um, but I guess it was what you've just been saying about specificity, it's those moments of specificity where we kind of uh, step outside of stereotyping and exceptionalism and those are the places where I felt like I could have a voice listening to people like, I mean, I'm, I'm incredibly lucky. I, I'm coming up as a like writer and a performer in a space that is full of um, incredible peers like Ellen Van Nieven and Evelyn Araluen and Alison Whitaker, um, incredible, like, <laughs> uh, queer First Nations people, mm. um, and we're contemporaries, but then we've also got our, you know, our elders and our seniors who have been writing in this space for an incredibly long time, and, and that, you know, the first uh, Indigenous 
woman to be published, uh, Ujuru Nunako was a poet. And so as, as long as there's been publishing for First Nations folk in this continent, um, it's been with poetry. And I think there's something, you know, I can wax lyrical for ages about how poets sit outside of the mainstream and so they can look quite objectively at the centre and create critique. Um, but it's, it is that thing because poets look for specificity and they look for the thing that is actually makes the thing come undone or makes the thing um, reveal the frailty or the fragility of something and it's, it's those moments that are... That's inspiring and that makes you feel welcome, right? Because mm. no-one's perfect and when you're in a space where everyone's saying, well, nothing's perfect, you go, oh, I, I, can, I can be here. But when everything's glossy and shiny, well, how are you meant to get into that? Mm. That's really interesting. I've been reading about the original jesters who were closest to the closest thing we have to archaic stand-up comics, and they were generally given like comedic license. That that it wasn't a time of free speech. There was no democracy. There was no free press. So the king or queen, the monarch, would appoint a jester and say, "You've got comedic license, and you can say whatever you want." And that was in some way to keep the monarch humble. And that comedian could say like, oh, the king's foreign policy, uh, <laughs> really, we're not keen on another war, and everyone would laugh, and then the king would know that that's probably true. And, but do you know who those jesters were? They had to be somebody who, were lo- who was lowly in society, often short-statured people, sometimes little people, uh, sometimes like uh, a monk that had been excommunicated, or a woman, because there were loads of female jesters because they were by nature already marginalised. I did not know that. Yeah, there's one really famous one and um, she was really good at improv, actually. And there was some um, very fancy, you know, aristocratic lady who said, um, when the jester came round, she said, I don't want a fool on my right-hand side. The jester came round to her left-hand side and said, I don't mind it. (laughs) Brilliant. And, you know, stuff like that that really... But the thing is, it was an outsider because the status had to be right. They could mock anyone then, and they would mock across the board. The problem I think we have now is you take a Ricky Gervais or a Jimmy Carr. They are multi, multi, multi-millionaires. They have houses in several countries. They get Netflix specials where they get millions thrown at them, and then they mock the transgender community. And I question that. The status is off. I, I'm sure there's lots of funny things about transitioning. I'd love to hear those things from somebody who's transitioned. I'm sure it's really funny, but I, I don't want to hear that from someone with experience. How do you feel about that doing queer stories? What advice do you give your storytellers, Maeve? I mean, definitely not to mock members of the community who they don't share an identity with, and that's the interesting thing. You know, we have this umbrella of queer, but a lot of people within the community are have wildly divergent experiences and are speaking to an audience of their mixed peers. And I've always been really proud that Queer Stories brings in a mixed queer community, because sometimes we do get segregated with the gays over there and the lesbians over there and the bisexuals in the middle going, where do we belong? Um, you also get the occasional straight in the crowd as well. I know, and they're fascinating. <laughs> I'm like, why did you come? Um, this isn't for you, but we like you. You're welcome. Thank you for your money. Um, and so my advice to them is always, yes, tell a story that's meaningful and specific. Don't try to tell your life story. Don't try to educate us. And then I'll often work with especially less experienced writers 
on that story and on shaping it as an editor because I know that it's a chance to speak to community and, and I don't have professional storytellers and people come to me and they pitch me and they're yearning to share something of themselves and as you say it might be something that they previously told a friend or a lover and they're like I think this has value and so I work with them to make sure that that comes across in the way that they want and it's a beautiful experience and what's been interesting for me as as an artist myself is how much better my own work has gotten by taking a step back at Queer Stories and not centering myself like I'm Mm. the host but I've only done a story of my own twice in six years And the process of working with other writers, finding out what they think about storytelling, finding out what they think is important in a story and editing, I mean, I get delivered all these little pieces of writing, has meant that my writing and my passion has grown. It's it's a fabulous way to any artist who can step outside and be a producer or curator like that. I mean, I'm sure you learn so much from your guests as well. It's been a beautiful process. I don't know if I answered the question. I just... Yeah, it's changed my life because I just get to hear all these interesting perspectives. Um, Julia, which storytellers have inspired you? Um, Well, music is a big one. And um, I remember, uh, I think it's 1980, and Kate Bush brings out Never Forever. And I know she's all in the news now and all Mm. that, but she has a song called Breathing. And it's a song about a nuclear holocaust, basically, and it's a fetus singing from inside its mother's stomach and I remember I'm in year eight listening to this song afraid but entranced you she sucks you right in the music's incredible the sound effects she uses she creates this whole world I think it's the last song on the album so you kind of left a bit sort of um how could, how do you I mean how does she do it you know this incredible vision of something you think it'll never work it does and then goes underground because she wants to look after a family and just goes, I can take a break. We don't see her for ages. Then comes back and does a series of concerts and says, please don't bring your phone. And no one does, for all, for all I know. Um, to be able to keep a level of quality in what she wants to do and fans that go, okay. And then gets a resurgence with this song in a new TV series for a whole new audience so the story continues. Mm. They might go back and look again. And the song running up that hill, well, what is it about? Oh, it's about a man and a woman. I thought it was about something else. So we're still figuring out what the story is and that poetry and songwriting, there's, it's never always so clear. You can put in your own... So when you can put your own feeling into something, oh, gosh, I love that. I love that so much. Mm. And how, what advice would you give to people in the audience who are sitting here going... Because I think the power, if everyone in this audience went away and said, I'm going to find a way to tell a story of mine, whether that be a blog, whether that be starting a storytelling night in a room above a pub, whether that be contributing something, you know, in a podcast, what, you know, there are so many different ways, writing a song, you know, there are so many ways also of self-publishing now. What advice would you give people who have a story to tell, which we all do, that want to build empathy further for women and marginalised people, like, what advice would you give them, Cal? I guess find out how you want to tell your story or what feels right, whether it's a whether it's a three-minute TikTok or whether it's, whether it's a written thing or... Like, I find when I'm writing... If I'm writing something, I write quite differently if I'm typing or if I'm actually writing longhand. There's a whole different 
mm. thing that happens when you're writing. And then also that's different again to me talking to myself out loud. Like, the, like I guess find the way that feels comfortable to tell that story. And look for things like I, I host the, the Melbourne um, Moth Story Slam. So that's a, a night where it's a basically you put your name in a hat and if it gets drawn out, you've got five minutes to tell a story on a theme. So getting up there has been amazing for people. We've had people come in that have, have don't even know what the night is and then they've seen the first half and gone, oh, well, I, I can tell a story on that theme and stuck their name in the hat and then they've, they've kind of won the night. Like, wow. Yeah, like for, or find places that are doing storytelling or, or whether it's an open mic for stand-up or whatever and just start. Just... And use your social media, and whether it's whether it's a series of tweets or whether it's a poem on Instagram or whatever, because there are so many ways to communicate now. Just start with something small. Mm. Just begin. Just yeah, begin. Just start. And try out different methods. For yeah. you, you might think you might find you're a brilliant lyricist, and you might find someone yeah. who can write good music, but isn't a lyricist. Um, that's like an exciting thing to do. Um, what else would you recommend, Julia? Well, it used to be eavesdropping, didn't it? Eavesdropping? You know, yeah, I mean, in a good way. I don't mean in a creepy way, but, you know, the beauty of travelling, the beauty of going anywhere is that you'll sit there and you'll be by yourself or, and you can hear a story going on. You're like, oh, bloody hell, I want to turn around and see who that is. And, but since, since we've been sort of a bit apart and stuff because of, of COVID, it's been a bit harder, but it's one of my favourite things. Like, I'll be with my partner. I'll go, shh, pretend we're talking, but don't say anything. I just want to have a listen. Less. Right. And I just want to hear, because it's fascinating. I'm also for tone and for accents and for everything. And I just think when you eavesdrop, and I mean, you know what I mean, in a good way, where you're not there going, oh, I need to know everything about it. But it's, I just love hearing people when they don't think they're being, when they're not performing, when they don't think they're being heard, the good and the bad, for drama in your story or, or, or something like that. But... Try and go somewhere and shut up and just listen to what's around you because to sort of fiercely try and create something when it's, it's around you, it's then how you transfer it on there. And drafts, many drafts, yeah, I would imagine. Because I, I think listening is key and thinking as much or more about audience as you do about yourself. Because, yes, everyone has a story and everyone has something to share. But I think sometimes that message becomes... And everyone's ready to go to an audience of thousands. And I think craft and absorbing as much of the art form that you want to create and going to it... And we're not just trying to sell tickets, but, you know, like participating and engaging and then going, well, what are my audience going to get from this? I'm going to get a really cathartic, beautiful experience of sharing my story. But... Am I doing it in the best way for them to experience that? Mm. And, and yeah, and I think a few people took me aside early in my career and were like, hold up, <laughs> practice this part. This mm. part's not working. If you, you've got to actually be listening to the audience while you're performing or reading the comments. Or mm. Is it about an outside eye too? Sometimes it's I feel like people eye. go out and do it on their own and you like, have the courage to ask someone to watch and oh, listen. Oh, my partner is a brutal editor and it's wow. fantastic. <laughs> And I need it. Sometimes I need someone who's like, this is twice as long as it needs to be. I agree with everything except read the comments. <laughs> I don't Maybe think... read the comments from not awful yeah, I don't, sexist men. I don't think we should read the comments at all. But I do think a trusted advisor and trusted other people that you trust. Brené Brown says, um, I saw her speak once. We did the gig together, not to brag. But we're in Nashville together. And I saw her say something I haven't seen. I mean, she probably has said it elsewhere, but I haven't seen her say it anywhere else, where she said, 
uh, when people say, I don't give a fuck, I give zero fucks, I don't care what anyone thinks, then she's like, that's not true unless you're a psychopath. Everybody needs, in a community, needs the validation of other people. But she said the question is not, um, do you need validation? Yes, you do. The question is, who do you need it from? If you go into the comments with an understanding that some of them will be horrible, you can take good stuff away from it. Now, it's possible I'm overconfident but and that I just go in and I'm ready to go. But, like, I wrote an article called Six Dangers of Lesbian Parenting and all the comments were from people... It was satirical. It was all about how great it was having lesbian parents. But all the comments were from people who were like, you're a homophobe. And I could have just gone, they're all stupid, they should have read the article. But instead I went, I need to think of better titles for my articles. Right. People always call me fat in reviews for my shows. I could write off those or I could put jokes into my next show about all the terrible ways that people found to call me fat. And of course, comments can be brutal, but if you go into them and go, how can I use this? How can I use this? How can I reinterpret this as something useful? I think the comments can be good. But also, if you're a performer, let's say, you know... You have to sometimes work with the director, and 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 I, I mean I, I don't know maybe that's not a maybe because you've been to an acting school and you know that or what, I don't know but you've got to have the other eye and if you can't manage another person looking at your work then don't do it oh. because they have to give it's like your publisher gives you feedback in your book it's like oh, you know a producer sure. will give you but you've got to have someone that's when you take it to the next level to go what's happening hundred percent but Brené Brown says not don't listen to anyone Brené the opposite Brown. she says. The people's advice that you should care about, you should be able to fit those people's names on a square inch of paper. And I have different bits of paper for different things. I'm not going to consult my mum on a screenplay. But I would want her to be proud of my morals. Do you see what I mean? Whereas there are some film producers, I would be very interested to hear what they think about the second act problems. And I would be very uninterested to hear what they think of my morals. Because I've seen them do cocaine on street level in front of a glass window like they're above the law. But what I'm saying is, I just, I think it's really easy with the internet just to go, ah, and hear this barrage of criticism. And what she's saying is, whose opinion do you care about? And so you obviously are made of strong stuff. You can filter through the comments and go, no, nonsense, oh, interesting, you know, and you can filter through. And if you have the constitution of Maeve, definitely do do that. And if you're me, don't do it. But, like, you know, I had a friend, she's a playwright, and she would invite people to come to a, a small theatre. It's in Melbourne called La Mama, and she'd invite people she liked. There might be 20 of them or whatever. We'd do a reading of the play. Then everyone would be allowed to make comments or whatever, yeah. and she'd listen. She'd write it all down. Doesn't mean she's going to take it on. But she'd write it down and go, thank you. And we'd had a great afternoon, and we'd read something that was interesting, and she'd go off and take it with her. And sometimes it's the advice or the note from someone you don't expect mm-hmm that will make you go, yeah, I do, I can be sentimental, that's true, or I can't, mm. you know, and, but because it's in a group in front of everyone, if you're going to be, you know, outrageous, there's other people kind of monitoring it, but I mean, that's very different to online, obviously. Mm, absolutely. Um, is there any advice, um, Jazz, for what people are listening around the world and people in this theatre can do if they want to be storytellers? Any advice you'd give them? The thing that I... Well, you guys are talking about performance stuff and that, like, as someone who sits alone and writes quietly (laughs) with the dream that maybe one day someone might read a poem, it's like you guys are talking on a whole different scale. But the thing that I always say when I'm teaching is, like, 
it should be fun. Like, you should be having a really good time when you're writing. Mm. And that's why I write poetry, because I don't know how to use a full stop. And when I try, it's really, really stressful, and I don't want to do it anymore, and I throw it away. And when I think if something's working and you want to sit down and you want to write or you want to perform or you want to tell that thing, I mean, that could only be to one person, but, like, it should be satisfying. And if it's not, then it's not the form for you, right? Mm. Um, that, well, that's what I think anyway. And I think throwing away the rules. Like, the rules are arbitrary and made by people that have nothing to do with you, yeah. <laughs> I think. Mm. And find your own set of parameters that work and... You know, rhyming couplets, they could be coming back. You figure that out. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, we've got to bring on our final act and, and say goodnight. But f- before we do that, is there anything you came to say you didn't get to say? So any final words on storytelling and or anything you want to tell us about, you want us to buy your book, um, anything like that? Jazz? Oh, I haven't given it much thought, but you mentioned the book thing and my publisher would be just horrified if I didn't plug myself. It's beautiful. You really should buy her book. I've read it. You should everybody buy her book. You must. Please all buy my book. It's called How to Make a Basket. Is it Christmas around the corner soon we could buy the book for? Oh, yeah. Christmas is always around the corner. Still half a year's (laughs) worth of birthdays. Yeah. Yeah. It was NADOC week this month. How to Make a Basket uh, is an an incredible anthology from Jazz Money. Uh, it's what all your friends want for their birthdays and for Christmas so a stock up and when you're running out the door for that birthday party you think oh I've got a wrapped copy of how to make a basket from a stack of ten just by the bed you know just by the bedside yeah, exactly, that you can grab and run exactly. that would be the dream um, is there anything you came to say you didn't get to say Maeve either on, on the subject of storytelling feminism or anything you want us to know about I mean I always have so many things to say, but I will just say, since we're in a zone of plugging, um, that I would love people to subscribe to the Queer Stories podcast. Please subscribe to the Queer Stories podcast. You'll laugh, you'll cry. And actually, from both of those things, if you read the poetry, if you listen to the Queer Stories, and start to think about not just what the stories are, but how those stories are being put together, I think it will really help. Have a rest when you need it. (laughs) Julia, what a wonderful piece of advice. Thank you, Julia. Thank you, Julia. Have a rest. Uh, 2023 is my rest year. I love that. And also, we should watch um, Fisk season two when it comes yes, on Yes, Fisk season two, by all means. It'll be terrific. Maybe November. Not sure, but we had fun doing it. And then I got COVID. Anyway. Cal Wilson, is there anything you came to say you didn't get to say? I don't think so. Just, just that storytelling is such a beautiful way to connect with other people. And I'm always the most inspired when I'm watching other people work, even if it's nothing like what I do, there's always value in seeing as much different stuff as possible. Mm. Um, And next year on SBS, I'm hosting a doco in which I fling my leg over a donkey. So, hey! Look out for that. Also, do you write stories for children ever? Oh, I do, yes. I've got two kids' books out at the moment. Uh, George and the Great Bum Stampede, George and the Great Brain Swappery. If you keep buying them, they might let me write a third one. Mm, please buy those for children mm. in your life. Um, and I would just like to say, if you would like to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast, give it five stars, and maybe... Put, tell someone online if you've enjoyed the show tonight um, send it to your WhatsApp groups 
along with uh, Chris's incredible project. Chris, can we just make a quick video for you where we give a shout out to everybody so you can send it to them? Um, well, if you come down the front and get the audience to shout out whatever you want them to shout out, and then you can make a little video and then uh, you can send it to your friends in Kenya. Okay, ready? So everyone at the same time, we're going to say three, two, one. Um, the Guilty Feminist supports freeblock13.com. Ready? Three, two, one. The Guilty Feminist supports freeblock13.com. Thanks, Chris. And good luck with your surgery tomorrow. Also, great hair, Chris. Thank you. It's the Edward Furlong from Terminator 2. Um, <laughs> oh, well, we thought you were going to say, but go you on. Were, sorry, you, before you were saying um, that um, you're sure there are funny things about transitioning. Um, so I have a six-year-old daughter, and when I told her I wanted top surgery, um, she said, oh, no, don't. I don't want you to get rid of them. I like playing with them. And I said, oh, yeah, but you've got your mamas, you've got um, Danica's, you can play with them. And she went, no, but yours are the longest. <laughs> what did I say? <laughs> Have you had a good Guilty Feminist show, Sydney? so much. Uh, please spread the word of the Guilty Feminist. If we come back next year, will you come out again? Thank you so much. Could I just have a huge round of applause for Julia Samiro, Maeve Marston, Jazz Money, everyone here at the State Theatre, everyone from Boehm, our producers, Boehm Presents, our incredible tour manager, Michael, my wonderful co-pilot, Cal Wilson. And to close the show, the one and only Grace Petrie. Um, while Grace is just doing that, that plugging in thing, can I just say my wonderful friend, Nat Behensky, is in the audience tonight. She's bringing Titanic, the movie, the play, to the Sydney Fringe. Uh, you will get to basically be in the film Titanic if you go and see it. Uh, so, and that's a really good, fun, wonderful way of telling a story. Uh, it's really immersive. So if you're going to the Sydney Fringe, or even if you're not, you are now, go and see Titanic, the movie, the play. And can I just say, at first I was afraid, then I was petrified. <gasps> Petrie, can I just say, oh no, we'll say it before we get to I Will Survive, when we get to that part. I'll just remind me to say a thing about I Will Survive. Okay. Yep. The suspense is killing me. Um, well, what a, what a gorgeous night, what a wonderful conversation. I, I, I have the best job because I just get to, st to stand in the wings and I listen to these incredible conversations. Um, and I always try and sing something that's a little bit on theme. So I'm going to sing you a song that uh, is a story. Um, and uh, so I, I wrote this song quite a few years ago. I've been very lucky to do a lot of touring with the wonderful comedian uh, Robin Ince. Any Robin Ince fans in the house? Cool. Um, so he does a lot of uh, stand-up comedy that is sort of science-related. 
And it was through him that I first heard this incredible story um, about uh, Carl Sagan, right? Uh, any Carl Sagan fans in Sydney? On the sofa as well. So, uh, Carl Sagan, uh, I, I, used, I used to say, I used to introduce this song by saying Carl Sagan was a famous physicist. And then somebody once heckled me and said he wasn't a physicist, uh, he was a, uh, I, I used to say he was a famous scientist. Someone heckled me and said he wasn't a scientist, he was a physicist. So, it's better if I get it the right way around. But anyway, it was a very highbrow heckle. Um, and uh, he did lots of amazing things. He worked for NASA for many years, and, uh, and he was working for NASA in 1977 when they decided, uh, the folks at NASA, they decided that they were going to send something out into the universe, right, to sort of, if, if, uh, if, if, if it sort of came across, up, uh, upon any aliens, then it would sort of tell the story of, like, Earth and humanity, and so they sent these things out, they sent Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 out into the universe, they were supposed to take photographs of the universe, and then they put these things on board in case they were ever discovered by aliens, right, and because this was 1977, the form that that took was a vinyl record, right? <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and onto this vinyl record, they recorded what they considered to be the best sounds that Earth had to offer. Um, so they recorded all kinds of different music on there, right from sort of like Beethoven to like Chuck Berry doing Johnny Be Good. Uh, and then also loads of all, like gorgeous things like um, birdsong or the sound of like a, 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 a baby's first like sounds and cries is it? And, the, and the sound of a mother kissing her baby for the first time right just beautiful things like that and they recorded them all onto these vinyl records and they sent them out into the universe sort of never to return right and I love this story for so many reasons and one of them is definitely that in the 70s this is just kind of the, the shit they spent government money doing you know <laughs> you know like, I live in the UK where my government won't pay for essential services. And in the 70s, they were just like, yeah, let's make, you know, mixtapes for hypothetical aliens, right? Um, and, uh, and so the person who was in charge of, of curating all these pieces of sound and music together, her name was Anne Droyan, right? And uh, her job was gathering all these pieces of music and sound. And when she was very near the end of the project, she was just missing a piece of Chinese music. And she found this two and a half thousand year old piece of Chinese music and she called up... Carl Sagan at NASA, her colleague, she called him up and she said, I found this piece of music. And this is completely true. They spoke on the phone for an hour at 10.30 at night. And at the beginning of that phone call, they were just colleagues. And at the end of that phone call, they were engaged, right? They were engaged. And they got married to each other and they stayed together until he died in 1996, right? This is completely true. And it even gets better than that, Sydney. Because, you know, she was saying to him, we are trying on these records. What we're trying to do is we're trying to recreate the human experience and you and me we're falling in love and that's the most incredible human experience we have so let's try and recreate that on these records as well and so on those records on Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 in between Beethoven and Chuck Berry and Birdsong there's also the sound of Carl Sagan and Androyan's heartbeats and their brainwaves when they were thinking about how amazing it was that out of all the people in the world they found each other and that's still making its way gold plated on those vinyl records through the universe today and when I heard that I thought if I can't write a song about that, I must be shit. Because <laughs> that just writes itself, doesn't it? So this is called The Golden Record, and it goes like this. If I could take down every inch of you in gold Engrave it in the metal of my soul And send it out to worlds beyond those known To find a cosmic gramophone 
no listener would ever understand The lightning bolts between two grains of sand Some people never witness shooting stars Most never know a love like ours And I didn't know That my heart was closed Till you came to unlock it, yeah, you found the perfect song And I couldn't stop it, not for anyone So send it in a rocket, yeah, to play after I'm gone You're the plug that fits my socket All the lights came on If I could reach beyond the stars that we can see To sing for them a song of you and me No amount of any greatest hits Could explain the way it fits And if I could bottle every beat my heart has missed Or the trembling in my hands when we first kissed How time and space and sense and circumstance Gone when we began to dance And I didn't know That my heart was closed Till you came to unlock it Yeah, you found the perfect song And I couldn't stop it, not for anyone So send it in a rocket, yeah To play after I'm gone You're the plug that fits my socket All the lights came on You're the plug that fits my socket All the lights came on You're the plug that fits my socket And all my lights came on What a phenomenal end to a really, really phenomenal tour. Thank you, everyone at BOEM. I hope we can come back next year. Um, tell all your friends, bring all your friends, and we'll do two nights in Sydney. Um, uh, I just want to say, I did uh, Five of My Life, which is a brilliant Australian podcast uh, hosted by Nigel Marsh, who I think is in the audience tonight. And he, I picked for my song, you have to pick you know, five things that you love in different categories, and one of them is a song. And I picked I Will Survive and said, because we always close the guilty feminist with it and how much we love it. And he told me something that I didn't know, and it really makes me even more love this song. Gloria Gaynor wrote it and thought, this is going to be a hit. And her record label said, no, we don't like it. It's not going to be a hit. We'll make it a B-side. And she was like, I know it's going to be a hit. They were like, no, we don't believe in you, Gloria Gaynor. And the A-side was called Substitute, ironically. (laughs) And... The B-side was I Will Survive. And they said, no, it's too long. No, one, no one's going to like it, blah, 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 blah. And so she got various... She and her husband got various radio DJs and nightclub DJs to play it. 
and it became this massive hit because she backed herself and she believed in herself and sometimes nobody believes in you and you know you have to just push through yourself and that was her story to tell and that has become kind of our guilty feminist anthem because whatever happens we've got each other and that means we will survive so uh, I just love that story behind it that you know if you're sitting out there thinking oh I'm not sure I can do it be more like Gloria Gaynor what would Gloria Gaynor do Um, she was right and she did survive Um, thank you so much Sydney you've been an incredible audience one last round of applause for all our incredible guests and everyone at the State Theatre Grace take it away are you going to help us out with this Sydney first I was afraid I was petrified
You have been listening to The Guilty Founders with me, Deborah Francis Knight, guest co-host Cal Wilson, and our very special guests, Julius Nero, Maeve Marston, and Jazz Money. Music was by Grace Petrie. The Guilty Feminist theme tune was composed by Mark Hodge and the producer was Tom Slinsky for the Spontaneity Shop. Thanks to Michael Hayes, Bone Presents and everyone at the State Theatre, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. some sharing here. Uh, I think that's absolutely the case. Can we have the house lights up a tiny bit just so I can see them? Just a tiny bit. Thank you. Super. Don't not enough to scare them. I don't want to scare them. Um, so could we... T- someone's just said down again. <laughs> Somebody feels exposed. Just a little bit lo- lower. Just, just so I can sort of see. Just so I can see. But not so that they feel suddenly exposed. <laughs> But nothing bad will happen to you. It's not one of those shows where I'm going to come down. Oh, my God. The helicopter from Miss Saigon's about to land. <laughs> um, thank you very much, Cindy. That's wonderful. Um, yeah, so could you please... The Guilty Feminist is provided exclusively from Acast. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com